0: Uh, If you will turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 26 through 42. Um, So last week, we talked about how we can prepare uh, for those who... Last week, we talked about... uh, The week before last week, we talked about those who are preparing for those who are going into difficulty. Last week, we talked about a couple people who saw others giving... But they wanted to do the same, but really didn't want to. And so they were selfish in the way they gave, and they were uh, punished for that. And so, following that, we, we see how the Bible talks about how there were many apostolic signs and wonders. And di- directly leading up to our passage, we see the apostles are preaching and teaching just as they always were. And there was a lot of people, all the people, whether they were disciples or not, had a good attitude toward the Christians that were there. There were multitudes of men and women being saved. This is chapter 5 up to where we're at. Uh, the sick were carried into the streets and laid on cots so that Peter's shadow might fall on them and they might be healed. And That's something I think we miss sometimes as we read through Acts. They kind of move quickly through it. There were many miracles happening at this time, many healings um, in ways that rival and, and go along with what Jesus was doing because God was showing up in the apostles' ministry to show that it was of God. So there were people coming from all around, seeking, being laid in the streets, hoping to be healed and delivered, and they found it. And so all this is happening, and, and they've already been charged and told, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. That happened earlier in the book of Acts. And so now the high priest um, has them arrested and thrown in jail. And during the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord opened the doors, brought them out, and commanded them to go stand in the temple and proclaim the truth about life in Jesus So they went at daybreak and they did that very thing. And when the high priest came back with the full Sanhedrin, they were told that the jail was locked, but no one was inside. Then they see the apostles preaching and teaching in the temple. And this is where we pick up in verse 26. So let's start there as they see them in the temple. So then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to the men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaedas rose up claiming to be someone, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all of his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone, for if this plan or this work is of human origin it will fail but if it is of god you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found fighting against god they were persuaded by him after they called the apostles and had after they called in the apostles and had them flogged they ordered them not to speak in the name of jesus and released them then they went out from the presence of the sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we, we thank you for this day that you've, been, you've given us, Lord. And I pray that in these next moments that we share together that we would look at your word and that you would help us to see what's happening among the apostles at this time, what attitude, what spirit they have, and how we can figure out how to follow this example that they've set. Father, I pray that you also help us to avoid the example of those who oppose them. God, I pray that you would help convict us, give us boldness and confidence by looking at your word, looking at your truth, that we might be able to follow the example you've given and be obedient to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been looking at the idea of the plan of God. This is the name of today's sermon, The Plan of God, because we saw them talking about the plan, right? When, when they send out the apostles and they're talking, hey, if this plan is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if this plan is of God, you won't be able to come against them, and you might find yourself fighting against God. And we know that they were following the plan of God. This was not of the apostles or the disciples' own thinking. This was not their own doing. This was the plan of God. And the first thing we need to look at We have to remind ourselves over and over that the plan of God is the gospel. The plan of God is the gospel. This is why the apostles were arrested. They were preaching and speaking about salvation that was found in Jesus Christ and is found in Jesus Christ. They were preaching about a risen Savior, not someone that had perished and remained dead, but someone that was raised again and that salvation was found in no other name. So they're preaching this gospel, this good news, the same one we still hope in today is what they're preaching. And for this, they are arrested. Now we know that this was not their plan, but God's. The first sermon we looked at in the book of Acts, Jesus told them, you'll be my witnesses and go and preach these things all over the earth, near and far. And all they're doing is obeying that commandment. They are going and proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Jesus told them what to do, and they're taking him seriously. And so when we look at this exchange that they have with the uh, the Sanhedrin, the key question, and the key question I think that we often still have to face today is, who is Jesus? There is a differing view of who Jesus is between the Sanhedrin and the apostles. You see, when they are questioning and they bring them in. The Sanhedrin says, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. What does that tell about how they view Jesus? And so this is as to say, Jesus was a blasphemer who was rightly killed. The Sanhedrin believed, the religious Jewish leaders believed they did the right thing, even at this point, when they killed Jesus. They did not view him as the Son of God. They did not view him as the Messiah or the Savior. They viewed him as a zealot who was blasphemous and got killed rightfully because he had done the wrong things. So that's their view of who Jesus is. How do the apostles respond to that? The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so they are responding to this statement about who Jesus is. Jesus is not a blasphemer, but he is the one through whom the salvation of God is available. And notice here, the apostles are appealing to this common belief. They both claim to believe in the same God, the God of, of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the same God that is their ancestral God they're claiming to follow, but he's he's making it very clear. The same God we, we follow, we claim to follow, sent Jesus so that through him Israel might be redeemed, and you murdered him. This is the fundamental disagreement between any Christian and any non-Christian. If you walk in in, and you're dealing in a conversation with someone and they aren't, it seems like they're just speaking a foreign language. You can't understand why they won't believe in God, why they're so put off by the idea of believing in what Jesus has done. They don't believe that Jesus is who you believe Jesus is at that moment. They don't believe it. And so that is the primary question. Until someone has a correct understanding of who Jesus is, that person is not going to be able to have any further progress in their relationship with God in a real way until they answer that question. The primary question that they were discussing is the same primary answer that is discussed today. So who do you say that Jesus is? Again, they said that Jesus was a zealot and a blasphemer. One thing that you need to understand here is that there were a lot of zealots at that time. And what I mean by a zealot is someone that was very itinerant in their uh, pursuing of God's promises. Okay, You look through the Old Testament, there's a lot of promises that God has made to the people of Israel. Promises of deliverance, promises of even though they may have difficulty, there will be deliverance. And we see that happen many times throughout the Old Testament, where the people are struggling. They're in exile, and God raises up a prophet and delivers the people from what is going on. Or, or just like when God raised up David to slay Goliath. We see how God p- follows through with his promises. Zealots were a category of, of religious people that took it upon themselves to seek to pursue the promises of God. So they were particularly um, anti-Roman government, wanting to see that overthrown, wanting to see uh, Israel be out from underneath the Roman government. And as we saw here, there were many people who pursued this. Theodos, Judas, these were likely zealots who gathered a lot of people, preached a a harsh truth, said that the the religious leaders weren't cutting it, you got to follow me, we're going to figure this out, and they die. But when they die, it ends, it scatters. And that's why we look through the Gospels. You see many people that come to Jesus. What do they ask him? Are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What do they want him to do? Lead a revolt and overthrow the, the Roman government. They think he's like the other ones that have come before him. But Jesus is not like the others. He is the fulfillment of those promises in a way that the people did not expect. And in many ways, I think this is an example. Th- those zealots are an example of what happens when we try to accomplish God's plan in our own strength. We don't lean on God and his understanding or his power, but we use our human intelligence and human cunning to try to figure out how to do what we think God wants without consulting him first. We shouldn't worry about those things. We should seek to follow God and fulfill his plan in the way that he instructs us to. Because here's what we see that's different. All those other things, followers of those other men, they scattered. The disciples did not scatter. Instead, they are more emboldened and more profoundly speaking than they were when Jesus was with them. We see in this passage and all through the book of Acts so far, the fulfillment of his promise when he said to them, it'll be better for you if I leave so that the helper will come to you. The disciples, all through the gospels, are a bunch of guys that are always asking, hey Jesus, what did you mean by that? Hey Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. And now those same men are the ones who are boldly speaking the truth about who Jesus is in the face of persecution. So boldly that when they are persecuted and beat because of speaking in the name of Jesus, they rejoice that they're worthy of suffering for the name the Sanhedrin, however, are unwilling to consider that Jesus might be sent from God and might be the Messiah. And because of that, they found themselves opposing the work of the God they claimed to serve. Salvation through Jesus is the plan of God, and it's important that we understand it. This has been the plan from the beginning. God did not decide all of a sudden on a whim to send Jesus so that people might be saved. From the beginning, God has been planning to redeem mankind through Jesus. We see this in how Jesus is the fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham. We see the, the typology of how Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, in the same way that Jesus would be sacrificed for us. We see it through the way that there is someone who delivers the people of Israel, like David slaying Goliath and, and setting the people free from this this thing they could not defeat themselves, just like Jesus sets us free from sin. All throughout the Psalms and the prophets, we see prophecies and allusions to Jesus, the coming Messiah. So it's the plan from the beginning. This was not an afterthought. This was not an accident. This was God's plan of salvation from the beginning. And it should be proclaimed. We have to speak about what God has done in Jesus, about the salvation available in Jesus. It's important that we do it accurately that we preach the gospel accurately the gospel is god's plan not part of the gospel and not the gospel but we can't remove things that we don't think are as uh, palatable we can't add things to it or or take only portions of it we have to preach the gospel an imitation or reduction of the gospel is not the gospel and what i mean by that i'm not saying that if you shorten it down into a simple format it can still be the gospel if the underlying truth is there if you start to preach something else, like the prosperity gospel, that if you will follow Jesus, you'll be forgiven for your sins, and he'll make you wealthy. That is something that is added to. Sometimes there's things taken away. God wants to save you, but you don't have to change your life. You can keep living just the way you were. These are false gospels. These are not the truth we we know this very well that there are many times there are products that we encounter in our lives that are are knockoff products they're not the real thing it was very popular when i was in high school we our, our senior class would always take a a trip to new york and every year it seemed like a bunch of the guys would come back with a bunch of fake rolexes because they wanted something that had this appearance of value but they paid 20 bucks for it it's not the real thing and upon inspection it's not the real thing and it has no real value In the same way, a gospel that is not the gospel has no value, and it cannot save you. It has to be preached not just accurately, but regularly. We we know the old hymn, we're prone to wander. Prone to wander. We are so quick to forget all that God has done for us and all that God is continuing to do in the world. We allow things to easily distract us and get in the way of, of, of that when we shouldn't. So the plan of God is the gospel, and the plan of God demands obedience. The plan of God demands obedience. The the apostles knew that proclaiming the gospel was God's plan, and so they knew that they had to do it. And this is why they were obedient, even to the point of great difficulty. The Sanhedrin wanted them to take another plan. They said, hey, just quit doing this. Go live your life, enjoy your life. You got a lot of people, stop it, please. They know they can't. We must obey God rather than people. We must obey God rather than people. This should be an attitude that marks our life. That when we encounter difficulties, we encounter situations that would challenge us to compromise, to do something less than what we know God wants us to do, we should let it refrain in our head. We must obey God rather than people. To follow a plan that is not the plan of God is to be in opposition to God. This is what we see there. He said, hey, we, we probably shouldn't kill these guys right now because if, if it's not of God, it's going to fail. But if it is of God, we're going to be standing in opposition. So if we fail to be obedient to him, we are being disobedient. It's hard for us to think about that sometimes, right? It's, it's easy to think about sin as don't do these things. But there are times where sin is where we fail to do what God is calling us to do. When you have had children in your life and you say, please do this, here are the list of chores I want you to do, and they fail to do them, they get in as much trouble as if they do something they've been told not to do because the the disobedience, the lack of obedience is disobedience. This is what's clearly seen in one of the world's favorite verses, uh, but often we don't go far enough to see that point of it. John 3, 16 through 18. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. One of the questions that people often will ask when they're considering faith in God, and and they're asking questions about it, well, why would God punish someone? Why would God punish me for not believing in Jesus? The reality is, and here is the the truth of the gospel, without Jesus, all people are guilty before God. We all are sinful. We all have broken his laws. We've all broken his commandments. But God graciously gave us a way of salvation in Jesus, right? John 3, 16, that's why we love it so much. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might be not, might not perish, but have eternal life. This promise is what we hold to. It's what we proclaim. But verse 18 tells us, and verse 17 tells us, Jesus came to be a way of salvation, not condemnation. He didn't come to judge the first time, He came to be an avenue and a conduit of salvation. But it says, whoever doesn't believe is condemned already because they've rejected the one that God has sent. And so we are compelled to go and proclaim this truth to everyone. This is what Jesus has very clearly commanded the apostles to do. And this command applies to each and every believer that we are called to go and proclaim. We are compelled in in every sense of the word, compelled as in commanded, because God commands us to go. This is why the Great Commission starts with an authority statement, Jesus came near to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus very clearly says, I have authority to tell you what you need to do. And here's what I'm telling you to do. Go and make disciples. Teach them what I've taught you. But we're not just compelled as in commanded to do it. We are compelled as in moved by the work of Christ. We are compelled as in moved by the work of Christ. You know, when when something is compelling, it, it moves you to do something, not just through the call and command to obedience, but through the way that it has transformed your heart, how it has moved your heart, It's the idea of being compelled because of how powerful and moving the work of God has been in our lives. This is what the apostles reference in Acts 4, 19 through 20, the first time they're before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. They're compelled, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Now, they didn't say Jesus told us to do this so we can't stop. They said, I've seen it with my own eyes. I believe it in my heart, so I can't help but talk about it. And so when we proclaim faith in Christ, when we believe this same gospel, my hope is that you understand the call, the command to be faithful in proclaiming and participating in the plan of God, but that you're also moved within your soul and your spirit because of what God's done for you. You're commanded, but you joyfully do it because you can't help but talk about it. They didn't say, Jesus told us to, so we must, even though that would have been accurate. They were compelled because they believed it. When we seek obedience to God's plan, we are not, also, we should understand, we're not in an unsure endeavor. And when watching a suspenseful movie, you might clutch the edge of your seat waiting to figure out what happens. It's not what it's like with God's plan because the plan of God is established. The plan of God is established I remember when I was younger, a show that I, I watched every once in a while was Scooby-Doo, right? You ever, any of your kids ever seen that show? And at the end of every show, they all, the villain always kind of said the same thing. The mask comes off to figure out who it is. And I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids, right? They had this plan, this master evil genius plan they thought was going to help them do whatever it was they wanted to do. They tried to scare everybody off this property so they could buy it for cheap, whatever it was. But it was foiled by some teenage kids and a dog. Not a very good plan. The plan of God was established from the beginning, as we said. Salvation through Jesus was always the plan of God. Nothing happened before or after or during the work of Jesus The surprised God. We serve the one who knows the end from the beginning and has operated in exactly that way. The one who says in Revelations 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. When we remember and think about what Jesus has done, we must remember that the God that loved us enough to do that for us is so far beyond us. He's eternal, the beginning, the end, the one who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And this is the one whose plan He has graciously let us participate in. This plan is not shakable. Despite the efforts of people, God's plans will not be shaken. Psalm 33, 10 through 11 says, if the Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations, he thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. There's not anything that you or I or any other person could do to undo or to thwart what God is planning to do and is doing. There was not a person that could stop God's salvation being available through Jesus Christ. We all know what it's like when plans have fallen through. We know what it's like when people let us down, when when we let ourselves down, when things don't go the way they were intended. Serving God and seeking to fulfill, fulfill His plan is one plan we don't have to worry about failing. Though it may not look exactly like what you expect or initially want, it is always for our good. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And we can be confident in this because we know the end result of the plan of God. The plan of God results in victory. The plan of God results in victory. In victory. We serve the one who knows the end from the beginning. There is no uncertainty with God. We don't have to worry about a surprise ending with God. I had a situation where uh, we were watching a Super Bowl with with some friends, and this particular friend was a really big Falcons fan. You may know where I'm going with this. And it was the year they were playing the Patriots. And at halftime, I think the Falcons were up thirty-one to seven. He was really excited. But he had no idea what was about to happen because they ended up losing that game. They made a massive, the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history to lose the game. We don't have to worry about whether following Jesus is worth it. We don't have to worry about, well, what if this doesn't come through? What if we end up losing in the end? What if we end up wasting our life? The only way to waste your life is to live outside of the will of God. Because we know that God is faithful. Psalm 119, 89 through 90. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is all generations; is for all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands firm. God is faithful, though others may let us down and, c- and fail to come through. God always will, even when we don't remain faithful. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.13 says this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny Himself. And so, as we're getting ready to to get to the end of looking at this, the plan of God is the gospel, and we're supposed to participate in that. And as we do, we should be looking forward to what we look forward to, and we're going to read that in Revelation 21 1 through 8. And, And when I was looking at this, I was tempted to stop at, I think it was verse 4, where we've got the full picture of what awaits the Christian who has been saved, who has been redeemed, but the rest of the verses show what happens for those who won't repent, who won't believe, and it's important that we remember that. So let's look at Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will, will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus is coming back, and God is going to make all things new. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be benefit. There will be no more death or crying or pain anymore. We look forward to this promise of dwelling, having eternal life, dwelling with God. The be- and I, I want you to realize this and understand this, because sometimes people think, well, am I going to enjoy heaven? Here, here's the best way I can try to explain it. The best moment and experience you've had in this life pales in comparison to the constant reality of the life to come. Think back through your life. The moment you had the most joy, like life cannot get better than this, and, Maybe for you, it hasn't gotten any better than that yet. Maybe it was a a marriage or the birth of a child or, or some beautiful, wonderful moment, some perfect thing you look back on with fondness. What comes is so much better than that, and it's all of the time. But that passage didn't end there. That is the promise that awaits those who have been saved by Christ, those who have repented and believed because only through Christ can we be saved. But there is more that comes because there's a promise and there's also a warning. Those who have not believed in Christ, there is another type of promise, the warning of the punishment that remain for those who remain dead in their sins. And this all comes back to the question that the disciples were disputing with the Sanhedrin. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? For those who have believed in Jesus, we believe that He's the Son of God who died for their sin and was raised again. Those who have understood their sinfulness, their need for a Savior, have confessed them as their Lord and Savior. For those, the promise is the coming victory. And for those, they are compelled. You are compelled to participate in the plan of God by proclaiming the gospel. Not just because it's commanded, but it is, but also because you believe it genuinely and you know that others need to believe and know this truth you've encountered. But for those who deny Jesus, they will remain dead in their sin. They have rejected the one through whom salvation comes and have rejected the salvation that he offers. The passage of John 3.16 goes even further, in, starting in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, not, does evil hates the light and avoids it, so his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives in the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be, show, be shown to be accompanied, accomplished by God. For those who do not repent and believe, they are choosing darkness. They're choosing their sin over God. They're remaining in darkness rather than coming into the light. This is why we have such a burden to share this truth. I want you to understand we were all in darkness because of our sin. We were all lost because of our sin. Remember the hymn, I Saw the Light? What does it say? No more darkness. No more darkness night our job is the same job the apostles had till the day jesus comes back we go and we call people out of darkness into the light because we introduce them to the light of the world jesus christ we tell them of the salvation available because of the work that he has accomplished and we tell them that it's available to them if they will believe so we're called to do so i want to ask you this morning are you Doing that in your life. If you are a believer this morning, are you living out the plan of God? There's all the parts of of growing in your faith, uh, being sanctified, becoming more like Christ, growing in that. But if you only pursue that, you're not being obedient to God. The primary call, the thing He calls us to do, is to participate in sharing the gospel, to go and make disciples. That doesn't mean that you are going to go and stand on a corner necessarily, but in your life, as you go, are you teaching people, telling people about the hope that you have? And here's the the last question I want to ask this morning. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Because it's not about going to church. It's not about being raised in church. It's not about what your parents believe or what your friends believe. It's about who do you say that Jesus is? Have you responded to, knowing, understanding that I was in darkness and I have believed in Jesus and now I'm in the light. Is that your story? Because if it's not, you need to run to Jesus this morning. You need to ask him to save you from your sin. Because that is why he came. Because all people stand condemned apart from Jesus. And the question you have to answer is who is Jesus to you? There's going to be a moment we're going to have a time of invitation and I want to invite you to respond as it makes sense in your life. Whether it's to ask him to save you for the first time this morning or to ask him to help you to be faithful in playing a part in his plan by proclaiming the gospel. To have that confidence in his promises that is available. Respond as he would lead you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. This time that we can come together and we can worship you. We can Just sing your praises, and God, I pray that you would work in each of our lives. You would help us to see the things that you have saved us from and to be thankful and joyful for that, and that from that place we would be compelled both by knowing we need to be obedient and by being excited about what you've done to share the gospel with others. And God, I pray that you would also be with anyone that doesn't know you today. If there's anyone that does not have a relationship with you, I pray that today would be the day They would walk out of darkness. They would ask for forgiveness for their sins and be saved. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.